This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of the Pleroma, the subdivision being an exposition of the epistle to the Colossians and the present series, which commenced last Thursday, forms a set completed itself and will be entitled Seven Steps to Glory. At this meeting, we read a portion of scripture together. If those of you who are listening care to join us, will you switch off for a while and read together with us Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 54, verse 17. In considering the teaching of the pre-Roma, we have reached the last word that occurs in this story by the references in the epistle to the Colossians. It occurs, as you remember, and verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, and in chapter 2, verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now this passage in chapter 2 still needs exposition and relation to the rest of the context. But before we do that, before we go on further in the epistle to the Colossians itself, I felt that the issues were so tremendous that we should not take it for granted that every one of us was acquainted with the teaching of Scripture which starts on that bottom rung of the ladder, crucified with him and dying with him. Especially as this is being recorded, I felt it would have been a tremendous gap to have said, well, that's good enough for that, let's go on. So for another study or two, we're going to take each one of these and I don't say we'll keep to um, one night for each one, not necessarily, but for the next night or two, we'll be considering this association of the believer with this wonderful, sacrificial and finished work of Christ. <laughs> I think that we might perhaps think for a moment of the work of Christ, the sacrificial work of Christ, as falling under three main heads. And the first two has to do with justifying God. Because in most cases we think about the justification of the believer. But if God weren't justified when he justified the ungodly, we should still be unsaved. So quite apart from whether Christ died for the elect, or whether he died for all men, there are all sorts of arguments put up, you see, about it. The point is this, he died. And he made an all-sufficient sacrifice so that a holy God would have a righteous ground upon which he could stand and offer a free salvation to anyone that believes. And if it were possible to imagine that even though God had gone to all that trouble, he sent his son, the atonement was accepted, and God made the offer. If you could believe that not a single person would ever accept it, the work of Christ would not be in vain. It would have accomplished what God intended it should do, make it possible for salvation to be offered without compromising God's holiness. That's one aspect. Then we come to the other aspect where we come into the story much more, and that is usually spoken of as the substitutionary character of the work of Christ. Some people don't like the word, but I don't see that we can avoid it. You get an indication of it in the types. You remember that Abraham was about to offer his son Isaac, and then his hand was stayed, 
And he was shown a, a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. And the scripture says, he offered the ram in the stead of his son Isaac. And that seems to be one of the words that you will find repeated in the suretyship of Judah. He said, I became surety for him. Let me abide instead of the lad, instead of. So there's that aspect. But even that doesn't exhaust the sacrifice of Christ and its relationships. We now are, are coming to another relationship. Identification with him. So that when he was crucified, we can take to ourselves, if we're in this position, that we were crucified with Christ. And when he died, we can say, we died with him. And when he was buried, we can say, we were buried with him. Now isn't this tremendous? Right the way up, you see, from the cross to the glory, these seven steps of identification with Christ in his work and in its consequences. You wonder what possesses some folks when they say that we have no gospel to preach. I wonder what this is. Wouldn't it be a lovely thing if more of God's people were acquainted with this aspect of the grace of God to those who are so far off that they are called aliens and strangers and Christless and godless. Fancy being united to the Son of God in this capacity. Well now let's notice another fact. The crucifixion of Christ is explained as the historic fact in the four Gospels. But the doctrine of the cross, what it stands for, is exclusively the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Neither Peter, James, John, nor Jude mention the cross. Twice Peter uses the word crucify, but he uses two different words. But ne never, in any part of the New Testament, apart from the Gospels, do you read the cross of Christ except in Paul's epistles. The doctrine of the cross was a part of his ministry to us poor outside Gentiles. But of course, some of you are already thinking to yourself, well, even though Peter didn't speak about the cross, he did speak about the tree. Oh yes. Let's, let's acquaint ourselves, shall we, with the way in which Peter refers to the offering of Christ. Acts, the fifth chapter. Acts, the fifth chapter, and the thirtieth verse. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. That's Peter's way of putting it. And you'll find again in chapter 10, verse 39, that when he's speaking to Cornelius, and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. And then in his epistle, he doesn't change it because now he's writing to the church that was under his authority, he still says in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins 
in his own body on the tree. So Peter consistently speaks of the tree. Now will you turn to the epistle to the Galatians? And as far as my understanding goes, this is the first epistle that Paul wrote. And here we have his own personal testimony. He is withstanding Peter in chapter 2. He's reminding him that they who had the law had been obliged to forsake the law and find justification by faith only in Christ. So he says in verse 19, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. How do you mean, Paul? Well, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's being dead to the law. But he'll explain how it's dead to the law in the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So Paul's a man who links together in one epistle Peter's reference to the tree and his own insistence on the cross. It's the same sacrifice, it's the same offering, but in the one it was an exhibition that all those who had come under the curse of the law could see the, the one who bore the curse. And those who had never been under the law but were under the bondage of sin and death and the elements of the world, they could see the whole thing finished so far as he was concerned, and they could start all over again with him. And there we get the two. Now I'd like you to turn back to the book of Esther, if you will. And um, in that book of Esther, there's a reference to the gallows that Haman had erected with the idea of hanging Mordecai, the Jew that he hated, upon it. And there's five references to this idea of hanging on the gallows. And in the ordinary way, when you look at the Septuagint version, the Old Testament in Greek, four of those references are translated by the Greek word to hang. There's one exception. When you look at chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, And Harbona, one of the Chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gathers, margin, tree, fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good to the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Now the word hanged in verse 10 is the ordinary word to hang in the Greek. And the word hanged in verse 9 Oh no, he only refers to the tree in verse 9. But when the king is quoted at the end of verse 9, the Septuagint goes out of its way, the one passage in the whole of the Old Testament where it changes the word to crucify. It's the only existing reference to crucifixion in the Bible before you get to the New Testament. 
When the king, this Gentile king, says, hang him, why did they, 300 years before Christ, go out of the way to change the word? Well, none of us know. But we can't help but feel there was a superintendence over those men who were translating that Old Testament because it was an exceedingly valuable piece of work. And it coloured tremendously the language of the New Testament. You couldn't have for 300 years a version like this in constant use among a people without it practically settling their phraseology. So here we've got in the Old Testament long before our idea of crucifixion takes place. Here it is, embedded in the book. Now, some of you have seen this roll, the roll in the book of Esther. I've brought it before for other reasons. Now that is the ordinary writing of the scroll of Esther, you see. But when it comes to the record and tells you that Haman and his sons were all put on that tree, that's how they write it. You know this? See? That's how it sit out. That's the names of the sons of Haman who were hanged on the tree that he prepared for Mordecai. Now the Apostle Paul, being a, a Jew and a reader of the Scriptures, he knew all about that method of emphasising. So when he wrote to the Galatians, he says, you see with what large letters are written unto you, when he took the pen and with his own handwriting in big letters, he, he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was only following out the same idea that they did many times. You'll find other instances, if you have access to the Hebrew original, where they'll lift a letter out to make it stand out to spell a word. Well, that's only by the way. Well, now should we now come to this further statement concerning the cross of Christ. First of all, we'll look at passages which speak about the cross in the epistles of Paul, and then we'll look at those passages where it speaks about crucified with. And by so doing, at least envisage, without perhaps comprehending, the wonder of the uh, method of God who reckoned us to be there when his son took our place. Supposing we look at the First Corinthians before we go to Galatians now. First Corinthians, you do remember, stresses the cross of Christ. And may I remind you that all the references to the cross of Christ in Paul's epistles are applied to the believer. Never once is the cross mentioned as a gospel message to the unsaved. Now, I know this would call down a good deal of judgment if some people only heard me say it. Because they would quote chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. But of course, even those who take that as their key for preaching the gospel don't stick to it. Because 1 Corinthians 15 will tell them that if Christ be not raised from the dead, your faith is vain and you're yet in your sins. So they themselves have to add the resurrection, otherwise they have no complete gospel. So we, shall we look first of all at chapter 1 and then to chapter 2, where this emphasis upon the cross comes. Verse 17 of chapter 1. Oh, verse 13 is where we get the first reference. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? 
for you. Now the sufferings of Christ are stressed. Uh, Paul, I'm sorry, are stressed. From the call in Acts 9 to the last epistle he wrote, he was enduring suffering almost beyond dreams. And the lists that you have of the things that he suffered seem almost unbelievable. And yet, not one of them, or all put together, would have saved one soul. That was an accompaniment. That was something that accompanied the ministry. But it didn't accomplish salvation. He said, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then he says in verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So now we're up against wisdom. Not so much uh, sin needing forgiveness, but one system against another. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now he turns it the other way. Christ, the power of God. Yet in the writing to the same church, in the last chapter of the second epistle to the Corinthians, he says that Christ was crucified in weakness. But he doesn't leave it there. I think perhaps we'll look at it, shall we? 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, last chapter. Verse 4. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. Crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. So he stresses. We come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. See, you said, I'll admit, it does look foolish to exhibit a crucified man and tell you that's the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. To the Greek, it's foolishness. Who ever heard of it? But he said the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The cross is particularly removing all possibility of anyone boasting in the presence of God of anything he has done or can do, it's completely removed by that instrument. Now then, chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 6, how be it, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Oh, he got it. 
He could speak it, but he said, I know. I could have tickled your ears. I could have used wisdom of words. He said, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Oh, he could, I said, I could have used it, but I didn't. Instead of going on into rhapsodies and taking you up into all sorts of second heavens and dealing with philosophic subjects, the Corinthians were all ready for it. He said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Now this preaching of the cross was to Christians, to a church who are called saints. And the absence of the preaching of the cross to saints and handing it over to the sinner is robbing both. You go to a man who knows nothing at all about the ways of God and you emphasize Jesus Christ and him crucified, what's it mean to him? But supposing you say to him, look friend, it doesn't matter what your politics are, it doesn't matter whether you're pro or con or whatever it is, anything that's going, we all agree with one thing. It's a remarkable thing. We all agree over one thing, unless we are lunatics. You can get the Albert Hall with all the colours of a rainbow manifested in their political views, and they'd all have to agree that we belong to a mortal race. Just say that. We may not explain it, but if you say it, you must have agreement. A person who is sane in his right mind knows that we belong to a mortal race. Right, you say. We've got to start then. Now, you may not be able to tell me why we're a mortal race, but this book says that that because of sin, death came and passed on all men. That's an explanation. You haven't got one, but that gives you one. Death passed upon all men because of sin. Right. The wages of sin is death. Now I'm coming to you, preaching the gospel, and I say Christ died for the ungodly. You see, there's no problem there. That's meeting the case. Now if you start talking about crucifixion and the cross, you wonder what you're talking about. But the scripture doesn't preach the cross to the unsaved. It preaches the death of Christ to the unsaved. You are on the way to death because of sin. Here's one who died the just for the unjust to bring you to God. Now, after you're saved, after you're saved, then begins the worry and the problem, because instead of being just perfectly holy, and nothing ever interfering with your intercourse with God, or you're continually being tripped up and falling and failing and making mistakes, and then the apostle says, yes, my friend, now you're just ready to understand the cross of Christ, which puts an end to the old man and all his ways and makes you absolutely dependent upon the Son of God. So, he says in uh, Galatians chapter 2, when he was dealing with this great question of putting yourselves under law, going through ceremonials in order to make your salvation a bit secure, that was the thing he was fighting when he wrote this epistle. He says, so far as I'm concerned, Peter, 
So far as I'm concerned, I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. And how has that been brought about? Dead to the law is because Christ died on the tree. Now that man was under the law. So Paul needed Christ to die on the tree and he needed him to die on the cross. If we've never been under the law of Moses, we don't have to stress the cursed is he that hangeth on the tree. We have to speak to the cross of Christ and say, that's what the world did with him and that's what God has done with us. And so when he wrote this this um, epistle, he sums it up in the last chapter, verse 14, God forbid that I should glory or boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. That's one aspect. And in chapter 5, verse 24, they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. So the world and the flesh. Not merely initial sin and forgiveness, but the world outside and the flesh within are all touched by the cross of Christ. And in chapter 3, you may remember, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And I've told you before, I'm sure, that this evidently set forth is the word to placard on a wall. <coughs> the actual fixing of a placard on a wall. He said, I'm so placarded this, I can't understand how it is this only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? That's where the cross comes in, you see. Now the only reference to the cross before we get to the prison epistles is Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And you will notice that it has nothing to do with salvation. <coughs> Nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with running the race. With a crown in view. Chapter 12. Wherefore see we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him. See? The cross bearing upon the question of running the race and attaining the crown. It is a trite saying, no cross, no crown. But it seems to fit the teaching of Scripture. The cross is to do with a crown, the overcoming believer. It's to do with the world of the flesh and not the initial presentation of the gospel of free salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Take the mighty epistle to the Romans. If you read chapters 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5, you've got the basis of Paul's gospel, justified by faith, righteousness imputed, Christ the Redeemer, Christ the Atoner, but never in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4 or 5 does he mention the cross of Christ. Isn't that strange? You think there you'd find it. It's not till you get into the inner part of Romans 
Does he mention it? And then he doesn't say the cross. He uses the word that we're considering. So let's now get to Romans, the sixth chapter. Romans, the sixth chapter, where we get the one occurrence in that epistle of the word to crucify. I think we'll read a few verses to get the context. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, he's already said in verse 20 of the preceding chapter, Moreover the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life, by Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he gets the possible objector. Oh, I see. The more you sin, the more grace is manifested. It's a little bit like my argument last week. The more of those uh, pictures you buy and save a shilling on each one, the more you buy, the more money you save. But you could see through that, couldn't you? But didn't everybody see through this? So he said, no. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He doesn't parley with it, you see. He goes straight away to the cross of Christ. He says, you can't possibly live in a thing that you're dead to. You haven't really changed your religion and turned over a new leaf. No, no. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now here comes, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. It's the old man that's crucified with him. And if you say to me, and who is the old man? I say, don't you tell me you don't know. You cannot have lived in this world very long without discovering what the Apostle Paul discovered, that when he would do good, evil was present with him. He said, I find a law. There's a law of sin in my members, which is opposing the law of the spirit of life in my mind. All the conflict that still may go on. And he says, this is how God has dealt with it. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. The old man hasn't been actually crucified, friends. Don't make a mistake. Not actually. It's been crucified by reckoning with him. And your strength is to stand where God has put you. Don't deceive yourself and say, because Christ is your saviour, you haven't got any trouble with the old man. You soon will have. But if you stand where Christ has placed you and do what he tells you, you'll discover that it gives you the strength. Now we'll go on then. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, not quite the word destroyed, katagio means to render inoperative, put a spoke in the wheel. But if you take the spoke out of it, you'll start working again, and that's what some Christians do. They forget, and as soon as they forget, it begins to work again, and they're caught up sometimes. Doesn't It doesn't finally influence their salvation, but it influences their peace. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For if that he died, he died unto sin once, 
But in the liberty, liberty of the God, likewise reckon ye also yourselves. God has reckoned this. The reason why we read Isaiah 53 is because it contains the words, he was reckoned with the transgressors. Or it might be translated, he was numbered or counted, it doesn't matter. He was reckoned with the transgressors. And on the same principle, God reckons us with the just one. If he can transfer to him all that misery and lay upon him the iniquity of us all, if he can do the one, he can lay upon us the robe of righteousness and make us accepted in the beloved. It works both ways. Well, you see, now we've gone over. I couldn't help myself because the scripture doesn't put it in watertight compartments. I've gone over to the passage which says crucified with him and it's all surrounded by dying with him too. You see the two coming together. Now, as we look to the epistle to the Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians, so that we may complete the survey of the use of the word cross in Paul's epistles. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, 16, and that he might reconcile the both unto God in one body by the cross. You see, that's not salvation from sin. That's not the forgiveness of sins. That's not the gospel to the unbeliever. This is something to do with a new unity that's been made. The middle wall of partition gone and its enmity destroyed that he might reconcile the both under God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby. That's the one reference to the cross in Ephesians. In Philippians we have two references. Philippians 2 verse 8 those who are looking at this chart will see that on the one side of the ladder we are descending down, on the other we're ascending up. And here's the descent. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It couldn't get any lower. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. And chapter 3.18, chapter 3.17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so that ye have us for an example. Now the Philippians were on a very high spiritual standard, as you can read by reading the epistle through. And it's intolerable to believe that Paul means that these Philippians were just following anybody, however wicked they might be. You can't believe that. He says, I want you to watch, because you can be deceived. Keep us before you as an example, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. A Christian become an enemy of the cross of Christ. If he turns his back on what the cross means, as he goes on to say here, whose end, this destruction or perdition, the word used in Hebrews, the alternative to going on to perfection, that's where many a Christian can slip. Whose God is their belly? whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, those who forget their citizenship and forget that Christ has put the cross between them and all these things, they're the enemies by their very walk. Well, don't you follow them, follow us, said the apostle. And in chapter 3, it's not salvation that's in view, it's verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. A prize. And then Colossians 1.20 
and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. And chapter 2.14 blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. <coughs> so he uses the very figure of nailing it. Christ showed the print of the nails. He was literally nailed to the cross. But when he was nailed there, all these things were nailed there too. In the East, I'm given to understand that when a transaction had been completed and a bill was paid, it was the habit to put the bill on the doorpost outside and put a nail through it so the whole village could see it was settled. And here we have the nail put through it. Now, what is he speaking about? Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. He says, you can't understand the cross of Christ if you're going back to all those things. He's repeating the same <laughs> things that he said to the Galatians. He said, you observe days and months and times and years, I'm afraid of you, lest I bestowed upon you labour in vain. I preach the cross to you. I preach the cross to you like I placarded you on a wall, and you go back to these things. He says, you can't do it. So you see, the cross of Christ has something to say with regard to religion and observances and doing any mortal thing except putting your full trust in the finished work of Christ and standing there where God has placed you. Of course, that takes a bit of faith to be able to launch clean out and leave all these things. But he says, after all, there are shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. The reality is in him. Now, I want to turn to the references in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, where we have the first occurrences of these words, crucified with. How long? Oh, well, uh, I'll have to take Matthew and uh, Mark, I think, as read, because I've only got a few more minutes. John, the 19th chapter. We'll look at that one just for a moment. John 19, 32. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. There are exact words, crucified with, which are used in the doctrine. But now to finish, Luke 23, 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. So there's the cross of Christ. On either side, a malefactor. One raining on him, and the other saying, we are being treated justly, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And then come the words, he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And if you'll read Psalm 22 and get the idea that on the cross itself our Saviour quoted the whole psalm, he started saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
He said, they pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots upon my vesture. The kingdom is the Lord's. And when he got to that, the poor old thief couldn't stop any longer. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. A man who could believe in a crucified man like that was the coming king, was a saved man. And the last words of Psalm 22 in our English version are, He hath done this. No word this is there. He hath done. And it's not a great stretch of imagination to know that that could also be, it is finished. He hath done. So you've got the first words of the cross and the last, all going there in front of that dying man. So there was an exhibition, that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, whoever had a sermon preached, like that man had. From what a pulpit, the pulpit, the cross of Christ, and Christ himself quoting that psalm and fulfilling every feature of it. Well, we haven't exhausted the theme, but I think we've seen something of the wonder of the first rung in the ladder that we start ascending. You must start here. As I said to children years ago, when I drew on the board an imaginary railway system, we were trying to get to a station called Palace Gates, and we were all guessing the station from which we started. Waterloo, no. Cherry Cross, no. Victoria, no. Eventually we got to King's Cross. You don't need any explanation, do you? We must all start from King's Cross, the cross of Christ. The Passover was the beginning of months to you. If you don't begin here, you never begin at all. May the Lord give us grace to realise some of the wonder that is embedded in these words when the apostle could say and say it for us, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. See, the cross has blotted that out. But Christ liveth in me.